Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Larry Olmstead. He is the New York Times best-selling author of Real Food, Fake Food, and Getting Into Guinness, a history of the Guinness Book of World Records. His new book is Fans, How Watching Sports Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Understanding, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Larry, welcome to the program. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is an honor to have you here. And Larry, you begin your book by comparing sports fandom to religion. How is sports fandom like religion? I mean, well, there's a number of ways. Uh, First is people think about, you know, having a favorite team, just like people think about having a religion. But we don't really, for the most part, choose that, you know, unless you're the rare convert, literally. Um, you know, being uh, what teams you favor are based almost entirely on where you're born and what your parents liked. And mm-hmm. it's exactly the same as with religion. So, you know, I tell people uh, in Boston that, you know, if they grew up in the Bronx, they would be Yankee fans and they don't like to hear that. But, you know, it's it's true. Um, but that's just sort of the connection. To me, um, the bigger issue is the number of people in the United States and the world who identify themselves as sports fan in in polls and such. So in the US, it's nearly 200 million people. Worldwide, it's a couple of billion. That's more than belonging to any organized religion. Uh, So I look at sports as sort of this communal societal framework, but the biggest one. Nice, thank you so much, Larry. Uh, You spend some time in your first chapter talking about the stereotype of the sports fan. What is the stereotype of a sports fan and how are you combating this image in your book, Fans? Yeah, I mean, this was one of several things I really wanted to address in the book. I I took a, a look at basically every Hollywood movie ever made about sports fans um, and sports fans portrayal on TV, which is mostly in sitcoms. And almost across the board, uh, Every sport fan portrayed, even in cartoons um, like The Simpsons and um, Family Guy, are overweight, jersey wearing, over drinking, and um, put uh, sports ahead of family uh, spouse relationships. And it usually, you know, just uh, basically portrayed as as grown up adolescents. Hmm. Um, and while most people I know who are sports fans are not embarrassed to be sports fans, when you ask somebody, you know, what do you do or, or how do you describe yourself? It's not normally what people put first. And I think part of it is that reputation or stereotype as a, as a couch potato. And it's just not true at all. Um, you know, sports fans are more likely to be active, healthier, happier, have better relationships, bigger social circles, a lot of things that I found that, you know, basically, yeah, yeah, some sports fans like to wear the team jerseys, but, you know, they don't all paint their face and scream at the TV drunk. So um, I just found the stereotypes somewhat offensive. And even when I talked to, I talked to a lot of people who weren't fans, who are interested in this topic, because they don't think a lot about it. And they have these sort of stereotypes of, of sports fans that are negative. So it's certainly undeserved. Right. Thank you so much, Larry. Um, 
in this book, you often speak with your friend, Dr. Christie, um, and you ask her uh, why she skis. And she says, skiing makes me happy. Does watching sports make people happy? And how does this happiness when watching sports reach out into other areas of their lives? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's probably, I mean, I find a lot of benefits of being a sports fan, but the number one is derived from happiness. A lot of the, you know, these uh, psych, um, psychologists and sociologists that I've talked to have found as many as a couple of dozen distinct uh, mental health advantages to sports fandom, but most of them generate from the feeling of happiness whether you know, it's having lower depression or higher self-esteem or more of a feeling of belonging and acceptance, those are all somewhat related to just being happy. And it's, uh, that in turn is derived largely in, through sports from the feeling of being part of a community. And humans are tribal animals, have been forever. It's genetic, you know, part of our caveman nature. And it wasn't really until the industrial revolution that you know, people sort of separated on a wider scale. And uh, even though that's the case and multi-generational families no longer necessarily live together under one roof for a long time and people leave their hometowns, they still crave connection to a community. And sports fandom gives us that rather uniquely in that I compare it to other kinds of entertainment. Like I'm a Star Wars fan, but being a Star Wars fan doesn't make me feel like I'm part of a group the way that sports fans get that, you know, which is why they call it Red Sox Nation or, you know, Packers Nation or whatever. There's a reason for that. People, even when they watch sports alone on their couch, feel as if they're part of something bigger. Right. And what about the uh, unhappiness and stress that results when a favorite team loses, perhaps as we sit here um, speaking for Kansas City Chiefs fans, for example. Yeah, so there's there's two elements to that that are really interesting. Uh, the first is that the highs are higher than the lows in almost all cases. Uh, one of the uh, psychologists I talked to described this as like a circuit breaker you have in your head. If your team wins the Super Bowl like the Chiefs did last year, you get this elation and you will always remember typically if people say, you know, their team may not have won since 1962, but they'll remember that season. They'll, they tend to not remember the details of all the losing seasons. So the high ha is basically unlimited in terms of the, the emotional uplift you get. The lows are limited. You can only get so depressed over the loss and then you move on and you put it behind you. So the way I describe it is if you're if most teams in most sports over a long period of time are average. Mm -hmm. um, there are exceptions, but most teams are, are around 50, 50 over time. And if that's the case for you, you still get benefits because those 50% of the games you win and those 50% of winning seasons do more for you on a positive note than the negative ones do. So you come out ahead, but then there's the exception of the really losing team like the Chicago Cubs before they won the World Series a couple of years ago just that you know or the New York Jets right now <laughs> where you know, most people most fans alive don't even remember the last time that they won something uh in those cases the fans actually can get an even bigger added bonus because they become extra proud just of being fans they sort of they're the they they've been through this ringer and they've hung on and it, it gives them a little bit of extra 
credibility. I even talked to like a Cubs fan after they won the Super Bowl who had sort of mixed emotions about finally winning because it took away this long losing streak. Yeah, they were no longer the lovable losers. Um, Thank you, Larry. You note 24 specific mental health benefits that come with the act of identifying with the sports team. What are some of these 24 benefits that we have yet to touch upon? Uh, well, I mean, like I said, some of the, the, you know, the biggies are lower depression, higher self-esteem. Um, but the, the one that I found really intriguing that a, a couple of psychologists have researched specifically is uh, protection against suicide. Hmm. You know, um, and that obviously is tied into lower depression and happiness. But to, to find that something like watching a game could give you you know, it doesn't save everyone. I'm not going to make a big deal of it, but you know, the studies have shown it provides a positive benefit in a life or death situation. And that to me is, is pretty impressive. Absolutely. A very huge benefit indeed. Thank you, Larry. Listeners, we're going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Larry Olmsted. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Larry Olmsted, author of Fans, which is published by our friends at Algonquin Books of Chapel Hill. Larry, Nelson Mandela did a remarkable thing with the national rugby team in South Africa. Can you tell our listeners about this? Yes. I mean, this is one of my favorite sort of stories in the book, and it's a true story, so it's even better. Um, And it was... um, already the subject of a, of a full-length book called Playing the Enemy, and then it was made into the Matt Damon, Morgan Freeman movie Invictus. Um, and basically, um, you know, Nelson Mandela was the first president elected post-apartheid in South Africa. And uh, not dissimilar to some of the sentiment we had in our recent election, uh, there seemed to be an impending threat of civil war, civil strife, um, even military involvement to possibly prevent this election from taking place. And Mandela hatched a plan well in advance of using um, the Afrikaners love of rugby to sort of win them over and using the national rugby team as a tool to unite the country. And at the time, because of apartheid, South Africa had been banned from a lot of international things, from travel, from competition, from certain exports, all to bring pressure on apartheid. And one of the things he did was immediately bring the Rugby World Cup back to South Africa. Um, And it was just huge to the fans there. And he put on a Springboks jersey and made a, a very emotional speech and encouraged everyone to support the team. And uh, 
And basically in the course of one game, one over this amazing public sentiment, I actually interviewed, you know, an American traveler who was at that game and didn't really understand the context, but said, you know, you just being there, you felt this sort of game changing paradigm in the whole nation. And that's, you know, probably the most extreme example, but I point out how sports fandom has been used routinely for a long time in the peace, international peace process, nation building, diplomacy. And um, that's just probably the most digestible example. Yeah, um, to branch out from this, actually, can you talk about how sports has unified and or distracted us here in the United States after September 11th and right now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely. You know, this is personally my, my single favorite topic in the book is sports fandom's power to heal individuals, communities, cities, nations after trauma, both man-made like terrorism, 9-11, and um, natural hurricanes, natural disasters. In this case, a pandemic. You know, when I started to write the book, you never thought that, you know, when I thought of natural disasters, I didn't think of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of came along at the 11th hour. But basically, um, you know, after any kind of a crisis, people are, are emotionally down. They tend to hunker down. They're worried, you know, after 9-11, what's going to happen next? Is this going to become routine? Is it safe for me to go out, leave my house? And it's the return of spectator sports brings a sense of both normalcy in everyday life and that this release from the negativity. A number of people told me that they remembered going to the first baseball game or watching the first baseball game after 9-11 and thinking something along the lines of it was okay to smile again. It was okay to clap again. I talked to people after the Las Vegas shooting and the, uh, the rise of the Las Vegas Golden Knights NHL team that season, just days after the shooting, same kind of thing. People who are afraid to leave their homes suddenly willing to go back, not just out, but into the same kind of crowd where they had had the experiences trauma, simply for that community in sports. And um, after 9-11, one of the sports writers I quoted, you know, says before that first game, tonight you'll, we'll be able to feel, sit next to strangers and feel connected by something other than sadness. And then I look at it with the COVID pandemic, just to be able to sit next to strangers would be, you know, a remarkable achievement at this point, not six feet away to be able to high five someone, you know, safely. And that, you know, is coming. And when that comes, that I think, you know, will be a turning point where we feel like, okay, you know, the, it's not just a light at the end of the tunnel, we're at the end of the tunnel. Right. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much, Larry. Um, to return to your friend, Dr. Christie, she asks about the difference between watching a sport as a fan versus streaming a show like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad. What is the difference in these two acts for me as a watcher? Yeah, well, it's a, they're, they're both fandom and they both bring people certain levels of happiness. Um, and I know I love Breaking Bad. I watch, you know, I'm binging it now for the second time. But, um, but as I mentioned before, it does not provide the same sense of community. And there's a couple of differences. You know, one is um, when you watch sports on TV, especially in non-pandemic times, 
there's always people in the stadium, whether it's, you know, college or professional, any sport, a lot of them are wearing jerseys and they're all cheering and they're constantly in the picture. And people don't necessarily think of this. It's a subconscious thing, but you're, you're sitting there watching a football game at home on the couch and there's 50,000 people who are members of your tribe they're with you on the screen. But when you watch any other kind of entertainment with a very limited exception of maybe a telecast Broadway play or something, there's no audience, you know, you're just watching it. And then on top of that, there's um, the, the unscripted nature of sports. And I actually just wrote an op-ed about this for the New York Daily News, but that's really what makes sports a different kind of entertainment is the fact that we never know the outcome and, and it's uncertain and it's in real time. And as I say, you know, you have to watch all nine Star Wars movies or you don't, you still know that at the end of the day, the dark side is not going to win or James Bond's not going to let the world get blown up. Um, Mission Impossible, you know, these have predetermined outcomes that you pretty much know going in. And that is, is certainly not the case with sports which is also why it kind of remains the last form of uh, digital or a televised entertainment that we have to watch live to enjoy. No one waits 17 weeks and binge watches the NFL season. Uh, if you find out the score and you've DVR'd it, it can, you know, some people, I won't even bother watching it anymore. And so it's that, that, and that's why we love an underdog story because in sports, anything can happen. And that's what's oddly compelling about it. Thank you, Larry. Um, I'm going to continue along this thread for a couple more questions. Uh, first, you had mentioned the unscripted nature of sports. And um, you compare the act of attending a sports game at one point of your book to um, the communal environment um, of attending a rock concert. Can you flesh this comparison out a bit? And as an addendum to this question, uh, do you think bands like uh, the Grateful Dead and Fish and Widespread Panic and the like gain so many fanatical followers because the concert experience changes every night and is somewhat unpredictable like a sports game? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, when I was thinking about this issue, comparing sports fandom to other kinds of fandom, it's not absolute that there's only sports and then there's everything else. Um, there were some similarities and the closest similarity I could come up with to sports was something like a rock concert, because, again, um, you have a lot of people maybe wearing clothing related to the event, which you typically don't have when you go to a movie or something, you know, they're wearing a tie dye at a dead show, they're dressing a certain way. They're recognizable as a member of your community, even when you're not at the event. So, you know, I talked to a, a sports executive who says two people wearing, you know, Packers hats are walking down the street in the supermarket or walking down the aisle in the supermarket. They pass each other. They exchange a glance. They call it the head nod. We're part of the same thing, even though we don't know each other. And it would be the same for two dead fans meeting on the street, you know, very recognizable. But then also, yeah, the fact that the concert changes every night. You Well, not every band. Some bands are highly predictable. <laughs> they play mm -hmm. the same set all the time. But, you know, the mm -hmm. dead is a perfect example thousands of concerts, never the same one twice. And fans, you know, waiting years to hear Dark Star played in concert. Uh, and then all that goes on with it, the pregame, the, the, the um, you know, the, the outside the stadium, the tailgating, if you will, you know, there's, there's a lot of similarities. And also, 
But the biggest difference I would say is that most people who watch sports watch it on TV. I mean, clearly, you know, these stadiums are huge. They have big capacity. There's a lot of games. But, you know, the, the vast majority of, of sports fans digest their, their sports on TV. And some would argue for a lot of sports that it's better on TV than it is in person. I don't think anyone would argue, would try to make that argument about a Grateful Dead concert, you know, and, and except in a pandemic, we don't typically watch a lot of uh, rock concerts digitally. Right. Thank you, Larry. Um, continuing along these lines for one more question. Um, you compare the communal nature of watching and attending a sports game to that of reading a book for a book club where a person can discuss a book in a group but reads a book alone. Uh, I want to bring your comparison between sports and religion back to the discussion for a moment. <laughs> Would the act of attending church then be more like attending a sports game as described earlier or more like attending a book club meeting as described here? Uh, that's uh, interesting. No one has ever asked me that before, but um, I would say more like the sports event. And I'm certainly um, all for book clubs. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. But uh, the same with a book or a movie, you might really discuss it. You might like it. You might have friends who are fans, but you, you internalize it independently. And also you don't discuss it typically during the act. You know, you read the book and then you talk about it or you watch the movie and then you talk about it. And as I say, you know, if you watch the movie the way you watch sports, you'd get kicked out of the theater, right? But um, sports, you don't just watch it together. You're constantly discussing, you're arguing, you're interacting with the people you're with every play. And I guess, uh, I, you know, I don't go to church very often, but, um, you know, you do have that, that, commute definitely the communal aspect real time people participating in the same things you might not have as much side banter uh as you do but yeah i mean i think there's a lot of similarities between sports and religion and it's one of the reasons also why historically you know any you know renowned stadium gets called a temple of its sports you know a lot of the terminology is is interchangeable between sports and religion absolutely thank you larry um Finally, one of my favorite parts of being a sports fan and one of my favorite parts of this book are learning about the superstitions involved in sports fandom. Can you talk about these superstitions and tell us about some of your favorites? Yeah, absolutely. And interestingly, that's sort of a part that came in, in later in the book. I was just trying to I cite all these different studies by psychologists and uh, scientific researchers, and then I wanted to give that some context in terms of how they actually do these studies, because people wonder, you know, well, how do they find out what fans believe? So I started kind of uh, putting in some of the information about how the studies are conducted, and I asked one of these psychologists who did, does a lot of the studies, like, what's the most interesting study you ever did? And he told me about one about superstition. So I started looking up studies on that. And it's phenomenal. I mean, part of it is this belief that, and, and it's, it's a popular belief among sports fans, is that you impact the game even when you're not there. People cheering on their couch. And, and you know, it is, it is not a stereotype that people stand up and scream at the TV, you know, when they're, you know, a big game. Um, and many sports fans, when asked, say, yeah, yeah, I believe that I have a positive impact on my team. Uh, on the other hand, there have been studies that suggest that even the fans at the stadium don't really have an impact. You know, the whole idea of home field advantage is, is somewhat debatable. 
in terms of that, but you know, the fans believe it. And then there's some who take it much further in terms of what they wear on game day or what not washing things between games, um, what they eat down to, I mean, if you've read, you read the book, there's some awfully specific people who like go stand in a particular line, buy the same dish every time, eat half of it, then go stand in another line and save it and eat it at a certain point during the game. It's not just, I always get a pretzel, you know, it's, I get a pretzel and a hot dog and ice cream, and this is how I eat them at every game. And then, um, having sex with their partner the night before and role-playing, you know, athletes in the games. Um, it's, 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 it's all over the board uh, from, you know, over drinking to, to Bible verses uh, in terms of, of the superstitions that people have. Um, and, you know, it's probably even, even greater among college sports where, I mean, you know, I didn't know before I started researching this book that the NCAA, uh, you know, um, licenses logo caskets to be buried in for the big teams. I mean, people take this stuff very seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of my favorites, it was not um, over drinking or Bible verses. It was over drinking and Bible, verses, <laughs> uh, which is very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Larry. And thank you for writing this book. It is a fantastic book for the sports fan, for those who don't understand sports fandom, but are open to gaining an understanding, it would certainly make a great gift for the sports fan in your life. Larry, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Once again, I would like to thank Larry Olmstead for joining me. Copies of fans can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.